As we prepare this morning now to hear God's word, I want to encourage you again to open your Bibles, should you have them, to 1 Samuel chapter 27. First Samuel chapter 27 is one of the shorter chapters in this section that we've been going through. And so uh, let me read the entirety of it since it's not so long and then we, I will pray and we'll, we'll consider this chapter this morning. First Samuel 27, listen to God's word. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul would despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. And David arose and went over, he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moach, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, and he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep and the oxen, the donkeys and the camels and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremielites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while when he lived in the country of the Philistines, and Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Let's pray. Lord, we cry out to you even now because it is our desire whenever we open your word that your spirit would work in a way that informs and transforms us. God, we are so confident in the profitable purposes of every single section of your word. And God, also in the recognition that the full counsel of your word has that wonderful impact of step-by-step step addressing the things in our life, correcting the ways that we think, the influence that the world has had on us, the weaknesses of our own flesh and, and natural doubting and tendencies. Lord, I just pray 
that once again you would be pleased this morning to take these words uh, that set forth for us a series of events that took place so many thousands of years ago and the significance, the meaning, the way that it applies to our own lives. God, that you would be pleased to make it vivid. Grant that I would speak your word with clarity and simplicity. Uh, Grant that your spirit would bring illumination and application and that you would be honored as we glory in your great mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you may have seen, the title that I've given this particular message is Mistakes Met with Mercy. Because when we read this chapter, once again, it's giving an account of David and the things that have been going on. But what, what happens in this chapter, you see again, David is doing wrong. And you almost scratch your head and think, what is wrong with David? How has he not learned these lessons by now? Which tells me this, be careful. Sometimes we may know lessons, but not be putting them into practice. We may know what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, but knowing and doing are not exactly the same thing. We want to see here, and we would long to see, David pressed more into a position where he would know what's right to do, and he would do the right things. But here is a series of, I'm calling them mistakes, and that's just a very kind way of putting the fact that there is faithless behavior, behavior and outright sinful acts. Okay? Which is not good. There are things that no one wants to do and yet David falls into these things. The first thing I want us to see, remember, the, the previous chapter, verse 26, now I might have to remind you. When I say remember, maybe I should remind you because chapter 26 we did two weeks ago because it tied in with the theme of a previous chapter. So, noting, when David and Saul parted at the end of chapter 26, just prior to this, it sounded to our simple ears like sweet, sweet reconciliation. Nice things were said from Saul to David, seemingly a recognition of who he was, of his righteousness and his goodness. It almost seemed like there was peace and comfort and they might be going back together. Now we do not have details. We do have a timetable in this chapter that tells us how long David was in the land of the Philistines. What I don't have is how long between this conversation that sounded so conciliatory, sounded so sweet, and like all the problems were behind us now, uh, and what's happening in chapter 27. I don't know the amount of time, but I will say this, in my personal experience, a lot of the time is not necessary for us to go from peaceful to provoking. Right? I mean, how long does it take? Sometimes we, it'll be like, this day started off so good, and then this happened, or this happened, and it fell apart, or I fell apart, or something along those lines. Well, the amount of time is not told to us, and that's, thus it's not the most significant thing, the amount of time. 
The reason why David does what he does next is also not given to us very clearly. Where it would seem that they would be in a position of comfort and peace. And he calls them in verse 25 of the previous chapter, verse tw- chapter 26. Uh, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. So, I mean, it seems like we're good. But we did note at the end of the we're good, David went his way and Saul went his way. It is likely, we've got to be aware of this, David lived for a time with Saul. He would have those times where Saul would love him. David, you're great. I love you. Lead my armies. Marry my daughter. You you are wonderful. Come and play music for me. You know? David, I miss you. Why aren't you at the meals? But then the same man who would show those wonderful overflowing expressions of love would also have fits of violent anger outbursts that were murderous we're not talking about somebody throwing a wooden spoon across the kitchen we're talking about spears with an attempt to pin them against the wall and at times when the first one missed grabbing another one to try to finish the job and so it may be that David was simply not returning because he thought this Man, Saul, he, that's what he said right now. But what he's going to be feeling tomorrow, I don't know. Because I've seen this guy go from, like, I was his favorite. I was his son to I am his worst enemy He wants to make me his closest companion and spend time in solitary with me, and he wants to execute me. I don't know what to do with this guy. So whatever it is, which would not be bad behavior, would it? I mean, that's kind of wise active, you know. I have experience with this guy who tells me, don't trust his words. He's volatile. He's highly emotional. He's irregular. I want to set this out there. It was Saul. There are some who want to attribute these kind of volatile characteristics to to one group or one gender of people and less to another gender of people. Brothers and sisters, sin, wavering, volatility. We are all guilty of such things. You know, it's fun to blame others and it's fun to point fingers, I know. But here is Saul, a man. A king, accomplished, but unstable. And this instability seems to be that David has has decided not to go with him. Now, it's strange how he's gone from that decision not to go with him to somehow think, now it's done. Really, I would say the the first thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage is the challenge of speaking to one's self. Okay? Okay. And I will, I, will, I will subtitle that in some way. The challenge of speaking to oneself. Sometimes you and I may be our worst 
counselors. We may be our worst advisors. But here's the beauty of that. We often trust our advice better than we do everyone else's. Our advice holds more weight with us, more sway with us, than does the advice of others. Put those things together, it can be very bad, and yet it holds great sway. Be cautious, brothers and sisters. And this is what happens here with David. It states it this way. Then David said in his heart. This is David speaking to himself. Some, um, uh, one other translation, it's in his heart, it's that word leb in the Hebrew. It's in his inner man. David spoke to himself and said this. What was the counsel he gave himself? Now Saul will kill me. I will one day perish from the hand of Saul. Now I ask you this. Is his counsel, his assessment of what's going on so far, his statement that he's speaking to his inner man, I will someday die at the hand of Saul. Is this true or false? It's false. He doesn't know it, obviously, because no one knows the future, except God, of course. We don't know what's going to happen, but he knows you know, I've escaped two times. Now, what's weird is this. When I process this, and I, and I try to use what I would like to believe is rational, reasonable, mental assessments, you know, this guy's tried to get me, camped out at my house to lay hold of me. I escaped from them out the window. God made a way. He tried to come, and he was going to lock me in this city. I got word and got out, God made a way. He's come hunting me a couple times and on two different occasions where he, they were closing in. On one occasion they were, they were closing in, they got so close that we were in, I was in the same cave with him. And he didn't kill me and I didn't kill him. On other occasions, uh, I had the opportunity standing right there in the camp to kill him. And they, they had all come, and God delivered me on that occasion. Another time, they were closing in on us around the mountain, and then he got word of a raid of the Philistines. Every single time, time and time again, when the danger has come, God has met me with deliverance. I mean, what, what to you would seem like the logical response that David should now have? Next time Saul comes after me, I'm going to be met with deliverance. He, he's not going to get me. God's going to make a way. But like it or not, when we live in this world, and when we experience what's going on in the world around us, the rational and the reasonable that would be rooted in a faith and confidence in God's work in our life doesn't always prevail. You know what sometimes prevails? Our doubts, our fears, our anxieties. They speak loud <laughs> to us. 
The, the, the thoughts of the mind and, and, and remembering God's tremendous mercies and deliverance, that takes effort. To doubt and fear takes no effort at all. I mean, that sneaks up on you in the night. That catches you in the mornings, the anxiety. What's going to happen with this? I don't know what's going to do with this. And, and in the whole I don't know, there's always this tendency of this would be a terrible outcome. I think that's what's probably going to happen. I think it's, uh, you know, and, and maybe we even at times paint the worst case scenario as the most probable outcome. Not intentionally. No one, none of us want to do that. But it, it just begins happening in our hearts and minds. And then we, we, we begin telling ourselves with it. You know, uh, expect the worst. Prepare for the worst so that if the worst doesn't happen, then you'll be happy. But at least, you know, prepare for the worst. And, and we, we tend to be like that. David seems to be doing this, though I'm thinking in every assessment it shouldn't be, and we can look back on it and answer. Did David die by the hand of Saul? No. So his fear, his assessment, his anxiety was ultimately unfounded. It was false. What he said to himself, and he says it actually with, with, in no uncertain terms. Now, what is language here? Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. That's it. I know that it's going to happen. He's he's not going to stop. He's going to keep coming, and eventually he's going to get me. I just know. I just know. You ever heard that from somebody? (laughs) You ever heard that from yourself? Yes. And this is, this is part of the challenge that's going on. And uh, more than that, he, 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 because of that first talking to himself, he thinks, well, this is what's going to happen. Um, well, how can I at least escape it for, for some time? I know it's going to happen someday, but how can I delay this from coming on me and crushing me? And he comes up with a solution. The solution is because of his anxieties and fears. What am I going to do because of this horrible thing that's going to happen to me? And his solution is simply this. Look, there is nothing better than for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. There is nothing better this is a really weird statement, isn't it? This is, this is the best I could hope for. You ever do that? You know, it, uh, under the present circumstances, and because of this guy and that girl, and it, it, this is the best I could hope for. Um, really? What's worse than that is in this situation, this is not the first time that he's gone to Gath. The very first time when he ran away through the window, he ran to this very same king. (laughs) And he showed up to him, and then as he heard the king's advisors talking, isn't this David? You know, the David who's caused us so much danger. And so what did David then do? started drooling and acting like a madman so that he could somehow escape, and then he ran away. And so last time, 
he worked out this supremely excellent solution, (laughs) what did he have to do? Act like an absolute idiot in order to escape with his life, seemingly. And so now that things have gone bad, I know what the best thing I could do would be. I'm going to do the same thing that I did last time that worked out so terribly for me. This, this, you know, you, you, you look at it and you start to think, this makes no sense at all. You know, I could say this, no sin really makes sense. All that it tries to claim and all that it tries to offer you is vain and empty. All of the supposed pleasures fleeting and useless all of sin and all of wickedness and all of thought that really isn't caught up in captive to christ and the truth of god's word ultimately proves itself to be just absolutely wrong worse than that if you were to consider as it says in first samuel chapter 22 verse 5 As David had gone out and he was wandering around in the strongholds of the Philistines, God sent a prophet to him, the prophet Gad, chapter 22, verse 5, and Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So God sent a prophet to tell him, You get back into the land of Judah and out of the stronghold of the Philistines. David's had a bad day or a bad day weak i don't know exactly but here's what he thinks there's nothing i better that i can do than to follow my own solution and ignore god's instruction yikes now david obviously is not going to literally say that and it's, it's possible that by this time, he's not thinking about that anymore. A lot has happened in the intervening time. Uh, things have gone on. And, and, pro- and here's part of the problem. David seems right now in this moment, he is so caught up in the present problems and how they will probably spiral out of control and end up in his demise that he's not even really thinking and really praying, and really considering. Well, I wonder what God would have me do. Wouldn't have been hard for him then to remember, stay in the land of Judah. But here's the difficulty that David would be facing with staying in the land of Judah. I've been in the land of Judah. Ever since I followed Gad, or dare I say God's advice, God's advice through Gad the prophet, What has happened? I got back to Judah, and I've had problems. In chapter 23 and in chapter 26, 23 on through 24, the Ziphites, they ratted me out. And uh, so each time that that, that I've tried to do, doing what God wants me to do and following the instruction he's given, has not worked out pleasantly for me. It's created other problems in my life. So therefore, I'll find that my life will have less problems if I do it my way. Is that a good way of thinking? If God's way means you're going to have problems, what do you do? 
What if God was to say, what if God, by the Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, was to write to Timothy and say something like this? Indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What? What if Jesus was to say to his disciples, when they hate you, remember they hated me before they hated you. Again, I have to throw out the what ifs, because these are the very things that are written to us in the scriptures. Wait a second. So if the apostles fulfill what God has purposed in their life, it means their experience is going to be fraught with pain, difficulty, rejection, hatred, mistreatment? Yes. And so what is it easy to do? You know what? If I stay at home and shut my mouth and just go fishing, Maybe I won't have a problem. Maybe I won't be arrested. Maybe I won't be stoned and put in prison. Why am I doing this to myself? I got a better plan. See, that only works if a person's passion is what? Me. But if their passion is to please God, to honor and glorify Him, then you know what they say? If His will brings with it attending problems, I'm good. Because I know that wherever problems attend, His grace is sufficient to meet every one of those problems. And so He's not going to leave me alone. He's not going to abandon. He's not throwing me out there and saying, all right, now let me see what you do. It's not like that. I mean, that's how when I was a young boy and my parents took me to my first swimming lesson. I'd never swum before. And, and this, this teacher, you know, I can't forget him. His name was Mr. Cicchini. He grabbed me. He said, can you swim, boy? I said, I cannot. I've never swum before. I just kind of around the side of the pool and sit on the steps. He said, well, you're swimming now. And he threw me in the middle of the pool in the deep end. It was ridiculously traumatic, you know? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you this. For, for the rest of the time that summer that we went to Mr. Chiquiti for swim, swimming lessons, I literally felt sick on the drive there. I don't think I can swim today. You know, just because it messed me up. Because that's not what God does. Isn't it glorious? It's, it's not, well, let's see what happens. You're on your own. Now, what I didn't realize is I wasn't ultimately on my own. Mr. Cicchini wasn't going to let me drown, you know. But I didn't know that, you know. I was just a little guy sitting there in the middle of the pool, you know, drinking that, that chlorine water. You know, and, and, ugh. And so, but if I, if I had thought for a moment, hard to do when you're a little boy, there's no way this guy's going to lead me to drown. I'm sure that when I'm going under, he's going to jump in and pull me out, right? I, I, all I could think about is, there is no one here to help me. I'm going under. You know, on the way home, I'm blaming my parents. You let them. <laughs> you know, it, 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 ah, it, that's the way that we think. In, the, in that moment, we don't, we, all the details that 
that God is with us. His grace is sufficient to meet every need. That you know what? Even to come to that place where Paul says, hey, look, I don't know if I'm going to glorify God by dying or by living. But I just know this. Whatever, come what may, I'm about glorifying God. Wow. At this stage of his life, that's not where David was. David was more, uh, I got to make a solution. I got to get something that will fix it. And he made his decision. He spoke to himself. Now he learns, it seems, as we go through the scriptures, he learns better than that. And he begins to speak differently. And I'll, I'll just say this as a simple fact. Every single one of us speaks to our hearts. We do it all the time. Now, I like what David says, uh, or what the scriptures say in uh, Psalm 103, verse 1. It's a little better. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. If I'm, if, I'm, if I'm using the fullness of my inward man and I'm speaking to myself about how wonderful and glorious and deserving of praise God is, that's better than re reminding myself of the peril and problems that are there. More than that, we could see other, other things. Uh, Psalm 47, 7 says things like this. For God is the king of, the, of all the earth. These are the, when, when the problems are coming in, is that what, I don't know what to do. This is going to probably happen, and I better do this. If I tell myself, you know what, son, God is the king of the, all the earth. He's got this. There's nothing that's happening that's accidental. As Jesus talks to Pilate, what does he say? You would have no authority if it had not been given you from above. It's, there's nothing, no one that we have to worry about at any time. It's amazing, Jesus, with regard to the, the, the agony of the consideration of the cross, says this in John 12, verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. And he's speaking to his disciples. He, he's looking forward, and you know what he sees? Unlike us, who simply think of the possible problems, Saul will kill me. This person will, well, Jesus looks forward and says, yeah, I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to be mistreated, and I'm going to be crucified. And Jesus is 100% right that, that's not unnecessary fear and anxiety. That is the reality of what was purposed for him, and he know it with certainty. And he says that my soul is troubled. Look, if Christ's soul could be troubled, it's all right if our souls are troubled. It's normal and natural. How do we respond in the travail of the soul? How do we respond in that moment is the question I ask you. Not like David did. Jesus actually says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, we could say this. For the purposes of God, I'm where I am. I'm facing what I'm facing. Father, glorify your name. Right now, 
in this, glorify your name. What a difference, you know? I tell you, there is one that sits on the throne of David that so far surpasses David, <laughs> right? That promised son that would sit eternally on that throne. Oh, Christ, how glorious. But David would say even... Uh, we would have statements such as this in Psalm 142. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Talking to himself again. And here, what does he do? As he talks to himself, he does right rather than wrong. In, in Psalm 42, the way that it's done by the psalmist here is hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. Will times of discouragement happen? Yes! Will they be frequent? Probably! What do I do at that time? Woe is me? No. Do I make my own solutions? Do I fear the worst? No. We, by grace, need to be people who say like this. Let the worst come. If that be God's will, by His grace I will keep my eyes fixed on Christ and glorify Him. I will not turn. David does not do that at this point, and I want to move on to uh, the second thought in this passage. So David did this, verse 2. He, he not only told himself what to do, but then he followed his own advice. Verse 2. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men, and they went to this king. So David made a solution. You, you don't actually see there in anything of inquiring of the Lord, any remembering the statements that had been given to him, no recognition of the fact that he had been anointed to be king, no, no recognition of anything that Samuel or Gad had ever said. He was resting in his own, his own self at that point. And he goes there, and uh, here's part of the challenge uh, with speaking to oneself. Well, we'll see, we'll see it a little bit later. He goes there, and he's accepted. The king welcomes him back. He's no longer drooling. He's no longer acting like a madman. He seems to have pulled himself together by this point. And he comes back, and he says that he wants to live there with him, and he lets him live there. And, and as we see, as he's living there, David's there for a period of time, and, and he's living in the royal city with him, with 600 men and all of their families. It's, it's a little bit tight. And so he just says, King, can we have our own town? Why, why should we be here and get these practical benefits of, of, of you taking care of us and benefiting from all of the things that come into you being the king? Let us go out there and we'll take care of ourselves. And so he gives them a town. And when he gives them a town, the scriptures tell us what he begins to do during the year and four months that he's there. And the, the second, so the first thing I said is the challenge of speaking to oneself. The second thing in here is the challenge of speaking to others. David and his men, it tells us in verse 8, went up and made raids against the Gersharites, the Gersites, and the Amalekites. Now, 
I'm not going to trouble you with the details of who are those people. Right? They're not Jews. They're the people who were the inhabitants of the land from the days of old. They're Canaanites generally, like the Philistines themselves were. They would be a people who oft would be allied with the Philistines, cooperating with the Philistines in attacks against the Jews in Israel. And David, as he's out there in the land, they begin attacking. Why? When they were living with the king, the tribute comes into the king, the taxes come into the king, there's plenty of food, there's everything. Now they have their own city. What don't they have? Well, they don't have goats, and they don't have donkeys, and they don't have animals, and they haven't cultivated fields, so what are you going to do? Well, their solution was simple. Let's go get ourselves some donkeys, and let's go get ourselves some, some sheep and some cattle. Let's go take it from somebody else. And so they did, and they did repeatedly, and they did effectively. Now, the scriptures do permit that for the taking of land for the children of Israel against these wicked nations that God was dispossessing before them, that they can and are to even go in and wipe the people out utterly. So what David is doing by going to these places and killing every, every man and woman was not a violation of the law. But strangely enough, what we see in here is his motives weren't to obey God. His motives were to keep what was happening from King Achish. And you see that very clearly in verse 11. David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say so David had done it. So David wasn't doing it to do right or to honor God. David was doing it to cover himself so that the report didn't go back. Now, he's showing some successfulness. It seems that the, the, the city is not too far from the town where the king was. There could be visits back and forth. And David would an was answering to him. And look what he says here. These, we know these raids are going on. Verse 10, when Akish asked, where have you made a raid today? Right, I mean, this is a pretty simple question. You've come back with a bunch of donkeys and cattle and, and, and sheep and oxen and all these things and garments. Well, you, you got a lot of stuff. Where'd you get it from? And what was David's answer? against the Negev of Judah. All right. Again, not too worried about Negev. Some people, it's generally considered like the northern regions and outskirts territories. But he says Judah. So who is he telling him that he's attacking? His own people, the enemies of the Philistines. I ask you this. Is he telling the truth? How do we know? Well, because he, the scriptures have just told us who he actually attacked. He said that he attacked these people. And, and if you were to go through it now, again, most of us won't know that. Um, and against the Negev of the Jeremiahites, 
which you're like, what in the world? Well, that's the grandson of Judah. And so an, an area where one of the grandsons uh, of Judah, so a territory, again, of Jews, a, a, a Judaic clan, and or the Negev of the Kenites. Again, I don't expect you to know that by memory, but the Kenites were those who were the descendants of Jethro, of uh, Moses' father-in-law. They were uh, a people that attached themselves to Israel, and received an inheritance alongside of them. So basically, he tells the king, I'm attacking those that are your enemies. I'm weakening those that oppose you. Whereas actually, he was attacking his allies and, and weakening those who help him. Now I ask you this, does God need David's lies in order to protect him from King Achish. So now this is his second time, David, second time with Achish. And the first time, did God need David to feign madness and total lack of saliva control in order to, did he need him to do that in order to deliver him? Neither time was that necessary. And so here, I ask you this. Is it acceptable for David to lie? Does that honor God? No. And so here again, he's taking it upon himself. But if I don't lie, here's the logic. If I don't lie, he might get mad at me. Maybe he'll kill me. Maybe he'll throw me out and I'll have to go back to Judah. If I go back there, Saul will kill me. And so David has a simple solution to the problem he's faced with. I'm going to lie. Tell you how often people face problematic situations. If I tell the truth about this, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> I'm going to upset this person. I'm going to disappoint this person. I'm going to get in trouble. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lie. Usually it's not even well, that well thought out. Usually it's like, I'm lying to protect myself. And it's just as simple as that. Don't do it. It does not honor God. It is absolutely unnecessary. He, he has done what he should not do. It is completely unnecessary. And take this thought into mind. Um, so he has dishonored God in doing that. But listen, here's part of the challenge. Okay, so there's a challenge when we're speaking to ourselves, not to speak on the basis of circumstances and fear and anxieties and doubts. There's a challenge when speaking to others to not lie to protect ourselves from different situations. And here in this passage, I think, is ultimately even the greatest challenge, the third challenge, the challenge when sin seems to overcome or succeed. That's the, that, to me, is the biggest challenge in this passage. Because why? When he says, I will no longer go into this, let me no longer in Judah, I'm going to go to the Philistines because if I go there, then I will escape and Saul won't get me. 
Well, his motives, his thoughts, everything was wrong. But look what it says at the end of verse 4. 27 verse 4. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. It worked. His whole process was flawed and faithless. But it worked. He came in, totally broke God's law, straight up lied to the king about where he had been making these raids. But what was his experience? When he, in verse 3, when he got to the royal city, he was welcomed there and given a place to stay. In verse 5 and 6, he was even given his own little town and territory to stay in. Further than that, down in verse 12, the direct result of his lie, seemingly, and Akish trusted David. I mean, that's some quality sinning. Right? Well, it is very exemplary sinning. Sin that so many people are prone to, you know? So what is, uh, so let me give you the sinful steps to success. No! This is part of the problem. People presume too often that God works on that basis. Oh, he must have been pleased with me. Therefore, I succeeded. This must have been the right thing to do. Therefore, I had victory and I overcame. Oh, this must be the wrong thing because it created problems. Was it the wrong thing for Paul to preach the gospel? It led to him being stoned. No. Was it the right thing for David to lie? It led to him being trusted. We'll tell you this long term. Though lie can elicit trust in the moment, when your lie is found out, do you think trust continues to hold there? Trust is gone. And trust, when clearly broken, is not easy to rebuild. Because you've already demonstrated you're willing to break trust. And so how do you trust when someone says, lives in such a way that they will break trust? It's tough. But in, in all of these, so that to me is the biggest challenge. The biggest tendency of us facing things in our life and things go bad. And we say, well, this wasn't the will of God. Well, really? Maybe it was the will of God for things to go bad. Was it the will of God for John the Baptist to be arrested and then beheaded? Well, if John would have just kept his mouth shut and, and not confronted the king about his sin, well, what was John doing? He was doing what God placed him to do. But how did that work out for him? Pretty good. Because he's in the presence of God with glory right now. Our, our system of evaluation is not so good. James got arrested. I mean, one of those early apostles, we don't even have details of w faithful exploits and activities. It seems in the earliest days of the church, and, and he's already gone. And maybe your tendency is to say, yeah, he probably would, be, would have been the least useful. 
of of the apostles and so god went ahead and nixed him early on and is that how it happened no because what would make any of the other apostles useful if not the grace and enablement of god anyways could not god take the weakest and most foolish and do mighty and magnificent things through that one yes so then why did god have James beheaded, allowed James to be beheaded, but then he miraculously delivered Peter. Was Peter more pleasing to him or was James? And that's a tough call from our side. Think of all of the persecutions and problems that God mercifully spared James from <laughs> and all of the trials and torture that Peter would eventually be subject to. So you ask me, now I ask you, which one was more loved? Oh, yeah, we, we can't ask and we can't think like that. Let's, let us not think worldly thoughts. How about as simple as this? God is in control, and, and when he shows me clearly what is pleasing to him and what he would have me do, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that to my own hurt. And if problems come from it, I'm going to look to him. And when discouragement arises, I'm going to consider I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at, am I walking in his ways? Am I pleasing? Am, am I doing by his grace the best that I know how to do? And if so, not going to overwhelm myself with self-judgment and self-criticism. I'm going to glory in my Savior. I'm going to keep my eyes looking to him, and I'm going to walk in faith. Three challenges in this passage in closing. One, the challenge of speaking to yourself, speaking to ourselves. Oh, how easy to let circumstances and fears and doubts and anxiety cause us to say the wrong things to ourselves, give ourselves wrong counsel, wrong advice, and then do the wrong things. The challenge of speaking to others. When we know that doing right before God might put us in a wrong place with them, when the early church is called to, when you see your brother in sin, go to him. <laughs> well, if I do that, that's just going to stir up a mess of problems. So I'm not going to. Really? Do we always take the easy way? The easy way for ourselves and the easy way for others? The challenge of talking to others is we speak the truth in love. We go to them and we confront them with a desire to win them back and restore them. We tell, we, we do things faithfully, we do things honestly, we seek to honor God and all of that. But if, it, but if I tell the truth here, it might come back to hurt me. It might. And that's okay. Because even that hurt is designed by God. Because the third challenge, the challenge of seeing according to our, its outcomes or success it's just wrong. You cannot, by virtue of how it made you feel, how it made others feel, how many problems did or did not arise, you and I cannot use any of that to determine whether this was or was not the will of God, <laughs> whether this was or not, was not pleasing to God. The Word tells us what's pleasing to Him, not our circumstances, not men's responses.
it's just, it's just too easy. I know too many dear believers who when they're facing problems, when they're facing trials and difficulties, they begin beating themselves up. Or they see somebody else facing problems, they begin beating them up. Yeah, there must be something. There must be something going on in your life. There must be something not right with you. Because, you know, why else are you having these problems? Why else are you facing these things? And we begin to have that, that weak, superficial, temporal mentality. No. We look to God. Because He's working His graces for the long game. And all of these trials, they're, in, they're, they're, they're given to us in order f- to humble us and form within us that character and those traits that would make us more like unto Christ. To where we value Him above ourselves and above this world. His, uh, his eyes upon us and His commendation and the glory that comes from Him more than the glory that comes from man. May He help us with that. Let's pray. Lord, as we do pray, we acknowledge that it is just tough to live in this world. At times, it just it's really tough to not only live with others, it's tough to live with ourselves. Lord, sometimes we, we are our own greatest problem. The ways that our own thoughts have been affected by, by the world, the way that we're so led astray at times by... Um, the flesh but we thank you for your word that retrains us and retrains us time and time again giving us pause to say there is more than your present problems there is more than the persecution of the world god is doing greater things and even if he was to explain them to us we would not understand grant that we would live by faith and not by sight that we would walk in your ways, that we would speak and counsel our hearts with your word and not with our doubts and fears, that we would engage others according to that which your word makes clear ought to characterize our behavior and our communication and not simply for what would seem to pacify in this moment. God, enlarge our hearts, enlarge our minds, fill us with love and grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.